This is a Podfire production. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. G'day guys, welcome to Awesome Humans. I'm your host, Brett McCallum, and we're going here to bring you the biggest, brightest humans we can offer from this amazing planet of ours. Today's Awesome Human is the remarkable founder, Pete Horsley. Remarkable is Australia's first disability technology accelerator for startups creating technology that enables people with a disability to overcome barriers they face each and every day. Pete has has more than 10 years experience in the not-for-profit sector in youth, corporate engagement, social impact and innovation. Pete has a penchant for good design, starting his career as a landscape architect. Now he eats way too many eggs and hopes one day to be an extra in a movie. Oh, this is going to be a ripper. Welcome, Pete. How are you, buddy? Really great, Brad. How are you? I'm sensational. Too many eggs. What's the go there? I, I I just love eggs. Like I That's actually why. grew up with chickens. I grew up with chickens, and so um, I've always eaten eggs. And um, yeah, I'll have I'll have at least a couple of eggs a day. So um, yeah, love them. And, and and how do you have them? Oh, usually usually fried because it's just quick um, in the mornings. <laughs> but um, preference is poached, actually. So preference is poached. <laughs> poached with a bit of sourdough, a bit of avocado. You get a bit of Is that how it works? <laughs> well, I'm in but, Sydney, so I have to I have to kind of live up to the standard, right? Yeah, no, fair enough, mate. Fair <laughs> enough. So, mate, the way as I mentioned to you before, the way this is, it's all about you. It's your story, and it's all about what you do, how you do it, and all that sort of stuff. So, the first thing I always ask people is, how far back can you go? What's your first ever memory? You know, the <laughs> the, the first memory I actually have is uh, is running out to uh, a bin uh, in Brisbane and uh, my mum had thrown away a bottle that um, I obviously was very attached to. and uh, Like a baby I, bottle? A baby bottle, yeah. yeah. I, I remember actually going out and kind of prizing up the lid of the bin. It was one of those galvanised kind of bins and, uh, and got that back out and... Um, and I don't know what that says about me. There's probably a few hours on a psychologist couch to kind of tease that one out, but it was, uh, <laughs> that's the earliest memory I had. Wow. So how old do you reckon you were? I reckon I was about, oh, just about two, maybe, maybe kind of, yeah, maybe just two. It's amazing. This process is really interesting because as we go through it, you then start thinking, oh, wow, there was that, there was that. And it was, it was very, uh, it was very interesting. Mate, um, where were you born? Born in Brizzy? Born in Brizzy, yeah. Born in uh, in hospital in Brisbane. Apparently the hospital was a bit overloaded at the time, so I was actually born in the nurses' quarters in, uh, in okay. Brisbane Hospital. So, uh, um, yeah, born to a really amazing family, mum, dad and two sisters. And what did mum and dad do? Uh, dad was in insurance. Uh, mum was a, a, um, a housewife. I, I have an oldest sister. She has a disability herself, and so... Mm-hmm. Mum was kind of her primary care as I was growing up. So you're the youngest of the three. I'm the baby of the family. That's it. Are you the golden child? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> we're always the ones that are kind of striving to be seen, and so we're always wanting to be the most important. Pushing for the effect, aren't we? And how old? How? What's the age difference between your sisters? So six to my next eldest sister, and then eight years to my my eldest sister. So they were a lot older. So you sort of um, they were they were a bit more grown up when you uh, sort of got to those formative years. 
That's right. Didn't didn't stop the arguments or the fights that we used to have, though. So <laughs> I think that happens no matter how old they are, mate. <laughs> That's right. So where, what school did you go to? What was your first school? First school was Rochdale State School. Um, great school. It uh, used to ride my bike to school and um, have really, really great memories of that school, actually. What sort of kid were you way, way back then? Were you good, bad, ugly, jock, nerd? I was I was an okay kid. I'd say I'm pretty kind of average at kind of most things. So I was an okay sports person. I was an okay student. I wasn't kind of anything by any stretch of the imagination that was that was outstanding. Um, um, I think I was a I was an okay kid. Um, that kind of changed a little bit in early high school, but um, but yeah, definitely started as a as a kind of. Um, a relatively kind of run-of-the-mill kid that used to just um, love hanging out with his friends and, and love having a good time. Just sort of got on with everyone and one of those sort of kids, yeah? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it, love it. And then you moved to high school. Which high school did you go to? Moved to high school. I went to Rochdale uh, High, uh, which was uh, at that time the school that lots of my friends were going to, so I thought it was the best school it was it was a pretty rough school to be honest. So the oh, first it? couple of years there, um, I think we had two buildings burned down. I think oh, geez. a teacher uh, that was pulled up for sleeping with a student. We had another <laughs> teacher who was a, a playboy centerfold. Uh, so yeah, it was it was an interesting school. That's for sure. I'm sure it was. And you, you said that things changed for you a bit in high school, did they? They did. So kind of oh, that whole environment, like it was pretty easy to kind of get into trouble at that school. Uh, and then I think my mum, uh, she wanted to make sure that I kind of came up on the right side of the tracks. And so she moved me to a private uh, Christian school. So I went to Redeemer Lutheran College after that. And were you a religious family or was it just sort of something that was... Yeah, uh... my, yeah no, we were. So, uh, yeah, kind of grew up with that uh, as part of our, our kind of heritage, I, I'd say. So, uh, so there was some connection there to that as well. But I think my mum's primary kind of driver was get him out of that school because it's not good <laughs> for him. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is always a good thing. Thanks, mum. And were, were you happy about that or were you sad that you had to leave your mates? Or Yeah, not at the time. I was really, really sad at the time. I was, I was thinking this is the worst thing. I uh, had, had all good friends that I really loved hanging out with and, and then I had to make a whole new friendship group and, and uh, going to this kind of prissy uh, private school was a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, no, I'm sure it was, and it's uh, and you have to wear like proper uniforms and the ties exactly. and all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Still don't understand ties. My young bloke, he uh, he has to wear a tie to school, and I just don't get it. I really don't understand it. <laughs> just, but, uh, anyway, so did you change as a human? Do you think when you went to the new school as well? I think I did. Like, I think that, you know, and particularly in those kind of formative years, you become like the people around you, don't you? So yeah. I was, I think I was influenced probably for the better. There was kind of a whole lot more people that were kind of taking their academics kind of more seriously. So I kind of felt like I had to kind of pull up my socks a little bit on that. Yeah. Um, still didn't become kind of an absolutely outstanding student, but I was, I was, I was doing a lot better than I was at the other school. Um, and do you anyway, actually like, thank your mum now for that? Totally. Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> think, uh, I think in, in hindsight, you know, parents are always going to have something up on you, don't they? So uh, they will. Um, I, I think she did a good job. She did a good job sending me to that school. And it was a big stretch for her. She was at that time, she was a single mom. 
And, uh, and so, you know, uh, financially it was actually a big stretch for her. And so I know it was a massive sacrifice for her to do that for me. So how'd you go? Um, obviously you've got a disabled sister and your, your other sister and with your mum being a, uh, a single mum, how did that all sort of pan out? How did, uh, how'd you go yes. to help, helping out and stuff? Yeah, so um, so my dad died quite early on of of melanoma. So he had he was a mad keen uh, sailor and used to kind of just go out without a shirt on all the time. And, yeah, and, as uh, they did back in those days, didn't they? As they did back in those days, and uh, yeah, developed a, a skin cancer on his shoulder that that ended up um, uh, kind of taking his life at about the age of forty two. Um, and then um, so from uh, I was eight years of age or just turned eight um, uh, when. When my dad died so uh that kind of left my mom and my two sisters and and you know it was uh it was i think a, a really really uh kind of tough time for my mom you know oh, of uh, course um my my sister has quite complex disability she's an amazing person she's um she's an incredible um musician and singer and she yeah. loves life uh but she's she's blind she was born without vision and she also has an intellectual disability and autism as well so um, you know the, the complexities of kind of navigating navigating that, yeah, is 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 quite quite difficult. And and I think mum wanting to kind of do the best for us kids as well, all of us, all three of us. Um, but the realities were that my sister, my eldest sister, actually kind of got uh, you know a fair bit of of the attention oh, of because she needed yeah. it and she needed that support. And I think some of that might have been a little bit difficult for a young kid to understand, but in retrospect, I can kind of understand that now. So, Especially at the age of eight, man. Sort of, and when things like that happen, and it happens a lot, and it means you grow up a lot quicker than you probably would have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're yeah. kind of thrown in, and me being the only kind of male in the family as well, yeah. you kind of feel a, a little bit of a sense of responsibility to kind of be the, the, the kind of the male in the household kind of thing. And I think I kind of took that... A little bit more seriously as as I kind of shifted high schools and went into into uh, a different high school as well. Yeah, and do you think that um, growing up in those situations had a, an effect on your life now? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think uh, you know I, I watched uh, particularly what my mum did in in sacrificing so much for other people and. Um, you know, even now she she's uh, she she always says that I'm I'm going out to help the old people. And I'm like, Mum, you're old as well. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she she just has that kind of giving nature, you know. Yeah. And and I think that um, that that was quite formative. I think kind of growing up with my sister and kind of meeting people that were really different. You know, some people kind of. Um, that I would never have kind of normally interacted with, they all of a sudden became kind of a, a normal, natural part of my life. And, they yeah. became, you know, I think a way of seeing people and seeing difference in a, in a different way. But that also created the human you are today. That created totally your, and, and, and that's all about kindness and empathy, isn't it, when you think about it? And Absolutely. Well, I think it's about kind of treating other humans as humans, right? Like yeah, we, exactly. we all have that kind of shared humanity, no matter where we are, where we're from, kind of what our what our kind of upbringing has been. We've we've got this this kind of shared humanity, and and I want to see the the best in humans kind of come out, I guess. And we're certainly not seeing that during these current times for a lot of people either. Is obviously it's tough and. It's like all these people sort of getting upset that they're locked in their houses for periods of time. They've got no idea what it's like to be a single mum raising three kids with one with a disability. That's tough. Well, having to, having to stay home just so you don't catch a virus is not that tough. 
Exactly. Yeah. We've got to get some perspective, right? 100% perspective and reality. That's what this is all about, really, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, make, make sure you look at that a little bit different. So when you're going through school, is there something you wanted to be, to do? Did you always think, oh, I'm going to be a, a policeman, a follower, or anything like that, or you just had no idea? You know, I had no idea. And, and I, you know, I still say I still don't quite know what I want to be when I grow up. So um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the, you know, the kind of thing that I think, uh, you know, I didn't have that kind of strong sense that, yeah, I wanted to be a kind of lawyer and accountant or any of those sorts of things. And, and so really kind of got to the end of high school and went, you know what, like my mum was kind of a little bit into gardening. This was this was kind of the sum total of my thought process around this. <laughs> um, she was a little bit into gardening. I kind of like a little bit of the garden and outdoors. I kind of was a kind of pretty creative kind of kid as well. And so I like that kind of creativity side of things. Um, and so I started, but I started thinking about architecture and started thinking, oh, maybe I could kind of design buildings and um, and maybe that's the direction I'll head. Um, but the, the score to get the entry score to get into the university for architecture was super high at that stage. And so, um, so then I started considering landscape architecture and went, oh, maybe that could be a stepping stone into architecture. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I pursued that. Um, and, uh, then within the first year, I think I told my, uh, my lecturer at, at, um, at uni at QUT, I said, oh, you know, I want to swap over to architecture. And she got really angry with me, actually. She said, A, don't use this as a stepping stone. This is a legitimate career in itself. <laughs> and secondly, she said, you're too good a landscape architect to kind of go into architecture. So um, so I stuck with that and finished out my, my landscape architecture degree. And you do enjoy it? I did. Yeah, I loved it. I, I, um, I loved the kind of creative process. I loved... Uh, you know, I love seeing kind of design actually take shape and take form. Um, I love seeing the way that design influences behaviour as well. So I think that there were some things in there that I really, really did love. So was that a uni degree or a trade or what, what was yeah, that? Yeah, was a uni degree. Out? Yeah, so okay. three-year uni degree, undergraduate at, at, at QUT. Um, it was, how did you find university compared to school? Uh, I loved it, you know. Um, it was probably a bit of an adjustment, you know, I think... Uh, and probably no more ties. <laughs> no more ties, exactly. Um, I had really good mates at uni, and and you know we we um, really enjoyed kind of going through that course together. Um, and I think you know there, there's definitely different ways of operating at university that no one tells you turn up to this lecture. No one tells you there's a little bit kind of more self-guided kind of an autonomy when you when it comes to uni. And so I think that adjustment at the beginning was really hard, but um, you know, you soon kind of figure it out and you soon work out what it needs to, to take to... to Man, for to a 17, 18-year-old kid to actually then firstly work out what they want to do with their life and then secondly to actually go, we're not going to tell you how to do it, you just have to do it. It's tough on anyone, isn't it, really? Well, your brain's still forming, isn't it? Don't they exactly, say your brain's yeah, still... Yeah. The frontal lobe's still forming when until I'm the age of 27 and my, uh, my frontal lobe still hasn't formed, so... <laughs> <laughs> Not fully totally. anyway, I hope. <laughs> I can totally relate. <laughs> so then you left uni and did you, uh, did you start your own business? Did you get a job? What did you do? I did. Like I, I actually kind of went, you know what, if I'm going to be a landscape architect, I want to find a job at the best company in Australia. And so um, I, I think this has kind of now become kind of a, a little bit of a skill set of mine in that um, I kind of used my network to be able to go, well, how do I get to that person? And so mm -hmm. started kind of asking around and, and found a connection into 
into land plan, it was called, uh, one of Australia's best landscape architectural firms at the time. Uh, they had done, uh, I don't know if you remember World Expo 88, they were kind yeah, of yeah. The, lead, the lead landscape architects for landscape for, for uh, World Expo 88. They'd done Hype Coolum, they'd done kind of all lots of amazing kind of uh, projects around Australia. And uh, and so I went and went, how do I just, I'll, I want to work for you, so I'll come and work for you for free, um, get some some work experience. And uh, and and eventually they kind of, uh, I, they, I did that during uni and then they offered me a job kind of straight after uni as a kind of early entry uh, kind of young landscape architect. So awesome. enjoyed that. Oh, that, that's great. And then where did you, during this sort of period of your life, are you single or you got a partner? Where where are you during that period? Yeah, I, I had um, girlfriends and those sorts of things. But yeah, I was, I was kind of nothing too serious at that stage. So uh, I was kind of in and out of a few different kind of relationships. But nothing as, as you should have that too, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing too significant. And then, uh, and then, uh, I'd actually started then, I think to the end of, towards the end of, of my degree and kind of coming out of that, I started uh, um, seeing uh, someone who, who now is my wife. So, uh, so that was amazing. Okay. So tell me that story. Well, you know how, what? How did we, you meet? So this is, this is, this, uh, so we met when she was six years old and I was 10 years old. So that's how far back we go. That's awesome. Uh, our, our parents are friends. Uh, they went to kind of church together, and uh, and so we met each other kind of through that. So um, uh, and you know, her being four years younger than me, she was never on my radar um, until I was kind of in my early twenties, and then I went, "Hang on a second, who's this beautiful young thing?" Uh, and uh, <laughs> why haven't and, I noticed her before? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> probably because it was partially a crime to kind of notice her when she was a bit younger than that, being a child, <laughs> but uh, having the four years difference. But, you know, um, and and we fell madly in love with each other. And, and so how old were you then? Since. So uh, I was 24, 23? Yep. 23. I was 23. Um, and she was 19. So, uh, uh, and then... Uh, we ended up uh, falling pregnant quite quickly, um, yeah. uh, and uh, and then we said, you know what, um, I want to make a, a thing of this, and and you're my best friend, and so we uh, we ended up getting married kind of soon after. And did you get down on one knee? How I did. Yeah, go? I did. You know what I did? I actually went down to um, to the coast. I went down there the day before, and I buried a ring under a rock. <laughs> um, it wasn't an expensive ring. It was a little bit risky. It wasn't super expensive, a couple of hundred bucks, but um, um, buried the ring under a rock. And then I had a whole kind of, I had to kind of create a little bit of drama out of it. Um, yeah, of course. So I wanted it to be special. And so uh, so we we went to the the headland at Greenmount there. And, uh, and I had this whole story of how, you know, at the moment we're kind of walking through this kind of, at that stage, Greenmount had kind of a bit of, kind of wooded kind of area at the, yeah. at the top of the thing. And I said, you know, this, our life might kind of feel like we're in amongst the woods at the moment, but, um, and we, as we progressed along, I kind of was telling this story, but I said, one day we're going to kind of be able to see and look back and go, this was all, all kind of the right thing to do. And then it kind of opened up to this beautiful vista of Green Mountain and, and, uh, and Coolangatta Beach and, 
that's where I got down on one knee, lifted up the rock, uncovered the <laughs> uncovered the ring, and gave it to her. So uh, that was that was the uh, the proposal story. And obviously, she said yes. Thankfully, yes, she said yes. <laughs> so, how do you break to your mum? that this girl that she's known all her life too, obviously, <laughs> mum, just to let you know, falling in love with, uh, you know that young girl we used to play with as kids? You know what? It was actually, I think it was because, you know, we knew each other's families really, yeah. really well. I think it was kind of like, oh, that's great. Like they're, they're a good match. They're a good couple. Um, and, and, you know, we know the stock from which they've come. So uh, <laughs> um, both sides of the family were super happy about it. Oh, that's good. So I suppose it also is handy to know what you're going into as well. Totally, totally. <laughs> it makes Christmas actually really easy because we just get all of our families together for Christmas up in Brizzy. That's a, that's a great idea. So, and you, uh, you had a little baby? Had a little baby, had a baby boy, yeah. yeah. So baby and boy is now now almost 21. So Wow. Uh, yeah. So now he's going through the motions. And what's he doing? Is he at uni or is he uh, working? Yeah, he's at uni uh, and doing a bit of work as well. So uh, he wants to be a, a, a primary school music teacher. Oh, there you go. My, my daughter's just finishing year 12, but she wants to be a, a primary school PE teacher. Awesome. Well, so I love good. I love the fact they want to go back and help educate. It's, uh, yeah, hopefully totally. they can yeah, change yeah, the yeah. education system in the process. Would be Absolutely. really good. Would be really Absolutely. good. So you end up just with one child? No, I've got three now. So uh, three and kids. Uh, yeah, so we've got um, eldest boy and then uh, two daughters. So uh, one that's just turned 18, 18-year-old uh, daughter, and she's she's doing year 12 at the moment. So yeah. uh, obviously pretty pretty fun year for them to be doing year 12. Oh, yeah, no, it's a bit funky, isn't it? But... Anyway, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, youngest daughter who's, who's 16 uh, and she's doing year 11, going into year 12. And are they good mates? They are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the yeah I've, got, I've got the same ages. I've got 16, 18, but then I've got two little ones as well. But um, awesome. yeah, the 16 and 18, they're in year 11 and 12. They're best buddies. It's so good to see. It is. It's great. Uh, definitely the young one looks up to the older one. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they get on really, all three of them get on really, really well. So you sit back and go, actually, we've done a pretty good job at this. Oh, Cheers, love. A bit, of, <laughs> bit of a relief, right? Um, yeah, you, you totally, you feel kind of, you know, incredibly blessed for the, the kids you've got and that they're healthy and that they're happy. And, and yeah, it's a massive, massive blessing. Right, but that also comes down to their parents. Yeah, maybe we can take some credit, but yeah. Oh no, but it's true. But look at you. Look, look at what you've done. Look at how you've made it. You wouldn't have done that without your mum. Yeah, totally. And totally. the influence of your dad at a young age. Like you wouldn't yeah. have, uh, you wouldn't have done any of that stuff without him. And I look, I look back now at what I've done and what I do, and it's complete opposite to what my parents did. But at the same time, they taught me certain skills that actually allow me to do what I do. It's really true. Really true. And hopefully some of that rubs off onto the kids. Obviously, they're going to sit there and go, no, I don't want to do that, don't want to do that. But then you, then you see they start to do little things. It's really good. <laughs> I, I don't think they acknowledge it just yet, but uh, hopefully they will one day. So No, of course, of course. Okay, I've got to ask you, remarkable. I can see it's on your shirt. Yep. What was the original concept? Why did we get out of landscape architecture and decide, actually, I'm going to get into startups? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So um, it actually happened through a good friend of mine. Uh, she helped me get into the disability sector to begin with. So we moved to Sydney and I was, uh, I was actually um, starting my own business as a landscape architect and uh, just doing kind of high-end homes was kind of what the plan was. And, uh, and a good friend of mine came to me. I'd done some volunteer work, some work through the church around kind of youth um, and, and youth volunteering. So had some experience in that space. She said, look, we just need someone to give us a hand, like one or two days a week to get a youth mentoring program up and going through our organisation. Knew I had a sister with a disability. So she goes, look, there's some, some, some things there that hopefully put you in good stead to kind of help us to do that. I was kind of like, well, getting some some regular income through the door while I'm starting the business is, is always <laughs> handy. So I said, yeah, I can spare a day a week. That's fine. Um, so started kind of creating this thing and uh, I, I kind of created it with young people with disability. I didn't really have any experience other than my sister in the disability sector at that stage. Um, but um, I, as I got into it, I started to kind of really love uh, the people I was working with, I got to love um, the the impact that I could see that we could have on these on these kids that just had incredible potential as well. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of it. I guess I went from you know a kind of three months, possibly six months of helping out to uh, one day a week to them quite quickly offering me more days a week and and. Uh, and was that going, a paid know, gig or is that, that that was a gig? Yeah, it was a paid gig. It was a paid gig. Um, uh, and, and you know what, I, I just said, I just love this so much that uh, that I think I want to kind of start pursuing this area. So um, that was kind of the beginning of it. And then I guess kind of fast forward a few years then, uh, and we, we started to, I guess we, we saw the kind of the, the, this kind of paradox of, of technology for people with disability. You got things like, you know, cochlear implants, which is this incredible technology. And yeah, you see, yeah. you know, people switch on the cochlear and hear for the first time. And, you, you know, you just move to tears by kind of what, what technology can do or, you know, a powered wheelchair giving someone autonomous movement to, yeah. be able to kind of move wherever they want to. And yet lots of the other assistive technologies that are in that space are really expensive. Um, they're quite monofunctional and they're really, really old school technology. So we started kind of looking at some of these things and started going, you know, there's got to be a better way. And, um, and so a colleague of mine actually started um, through, we're, we're kind of establishing something called World Cerebral Palsy Day back in 2012. She, she um, helped establish a competition. So it was a global competition to ask people with disability, what's one thing that would change your world? And uh, we actually had a, um, you know, people all over the world kind of submitting ideas around this. People could vote for ideas on things that they thought were great. Um, we actually had a man by the name of Alpa who was living in Bursa, Turkey. So a small little country town yeah. in the northwest part of Turkey. He said, well, you know, the thing that would change my world is actually if someone could create a solar powered wheelchair. And uh, he said, you know, there's a temple on the other side of town that I want to worship at, but, uh, but I can't get there because my wheelchair just doesn't hold enough charge to get there. Um, I haven't been able to kind of full, hold down any part-time or full-time work because I can't actually, my, again, I can't afford to replace my wheelchair and I can't actually get into town to where the, where the work is. So we went, solar-powered wheelchair, how hard can that be, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we did what we kind of, um, what, we, what we can do and we kind of put it out to the worldwide maker community and just said, can anyone kind of make this thing? And uh, we actually had a university in Virginia that said, yeah, we'll, we'll make it. Um, 
And so we awarded them some money to kind of um, to, to make this thing and, and they ended up shipping the, the prototype over to, to Alpa in Turkey. Now it's probably to this day, I still kind of tell people it's probably one of the ugliest prototypes I've ever seen. It was literally <laughs> a kind of powered chair, a couple of little stalks up and some solar panels on the top. Um, but it worked, like it really did work. And so um, they shipped it over in a shipping container over to Alpa and Within days, we had a photo of Alpa out in front of that temple that he wanted to worship. Oh, wow. And that makes you go all tingly, later, doesn't it? I love yeah, this. It's shit. amazing. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, he said, about six weeks later, he said, oh, good news, I've got a part-time job in town. Oh. So we're like, oh, okay, we're on to something here. You know, there's something in this. It changed that bloke's life. Absolutely. And so we're, we're kind of thinking, okay, it's about kind of ideas. So... So we started running like hackathons. I don't know if you've heard of hackathons. Oh, mate, I'm big in the like, startup. I do a lot of mentoring in the startup community. Yeah, awesome. And, and so, so I read this and go, yeah, let's play. That's good fun. So we, we started doing some hackathons in 2014 and, and, you know, bringing together a whole bunch of smart people, people with disability, makers, creators, hackers, getting them all together in a room for a few days and going, let's solve some problems in this space. Um, the thing that we kind of found quite quickly, though, was that... Um, uh, you know, people were great in coming up with brilliant ideas. And I thought all of the ideas that came out of the first designathon that we did was, uh, was going to change the world. But, um, you know, like with many hackathons, um, uh, the ideas was all that was hap that happened. Yeah. Everyone best three days of weeks. people's lives. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They all went back to their day jobs and nothing yeah. happened with these ideas. Um, and I was doing some stuff with our, our corporate partners at the time. And so Telstra, one of our, one of our corporate partners actually approached us and said, look, we like the work that you're doing. Um, uh, and if we're, we're looking for a new kind of significant partner in the disability space as well. And if we were to give you half a million dollars, what would you do with it? And I was like, oh my goodness, like, here we go, right? Like, <laughs> I phoned up my CEO and said, oh, look, I uh, just had a really interesting discussion with Telstra. Um, <laughs> they're potentially offering us half a million dollars. And, and he, to his credit, he said to me, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, you know, in, in my mind, um, until we get technology in the hands of people with disability, I don't think we're making a lick of difference. Ideas are easy, execution yeah. is super hard. And so I said, I want to create, I'd heard about accelerators and incubators like about three weeks before. And so I was like really confidently saying, let's create an accelerator. Let's, let's support these early stage ideas to get through to commercialization, get the technology in the market, get them in the hands of people with disability. And, and to his credit, he goes, okay, let's, let's put that forward and see what Telstra thinks. And uh, again, to Telstra's credit, um, they went, we think that's a great idea um, and, and we're willing to back you. So they put up some early stage kind of capital for us, um, some operational capital and also some investment money that we we're going to give to some of the startups as well. And that kind of really kicked us off back in 2016. And is that where Remarkable come from? It is, yeah. So that um, we started kind of with a really terrible name of Life Labs, and uh, and and quite quickly we actually had some help with this. We we branded <laughs> to Remarkable. And yeah. I love it because it kind of speaks to everything that we want to we want to see. We want to see remarkable humans kind of creating this technology. We really believe that everyone deserves a right to show oh, how remarkable that they are. Yeah, and yeah. people with disability are so. Uh, so overlooked in our society and they are incredible individuals and they have so much to offer. And it's sometimes that they've just got a whole bunch of barriers in front of them that they need to overcome. 
And so technology can have a really, really incredible role to help them overcome those barriers. Yeah, 100%. So what's the best piece of tech that's ever come out of Remarkable? Uh, um, and you'll know this having having four kids, but you can't have any favourite children, right? But um, oh, you you can. You just tell each one that you're my favourite. Don't tell the others. <laughs> we're, we've got really really amazing <laughs> stories. So I'll tell you a few other stories. Of yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. You know, one of the ones at the at the beginning was um, a, a, a company called Ability. They were called Ability Mate. Now they're called Ability Made. Um, and they came to us with this really, really incredible concept of, of using 3D printing and 3D manufacturing for, uh, for assistive technology. So they could see all of this kind of really, really expensive kind of assistive devices and all of those sorts of things that cost an absolute bomb. And they told the story of a young girl that, um, that they talked to um, who she, uh, she was using a powered chair to, for her mobility. So she was using a powered chair to get around places. Um, and she couldn't use the kind of typical um, ball on a stick kind of joystick type ones mm -hmm. that you see a lot of. Um, um, but she could use one finger to do the, to, to the control. She had quite good control of, of this one finger. And so, uh, so she had been quoted originally from a, a disability organisation $1,000 and she was told that she'd have to wait six months to get it. So all this time she wasn't able to drive the, the new wheelchair wow. that she had. And I was like, that's crazy. Like come and talk to us. So they sat down with her for like 45 minutes. And uh, within that time, they'd printed out 10 of them and all for the cost of about 37 cents. It was just <laughs> insane. So we're like, amazing. That sounds incredible. We want to work with you. Yeah. And we said to them, how big is the market for customized wheelchair controllers? And they went, well, she's probably about half the market in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> There's two so of them. <laughs> exactly. So... We said, well, how, how can we, uh, you know, how can we um, kind of use this same kind of intent and technology for, for something that's actually commercially viable? And um, they, they kind of discovered the, the orthotics market. So uh, kind of little kind of um, pieces of technology, it might go over a wrist or an ankle, and they wanted to focus on the ankle orthotics, so they're called AFOs. And um, the current process around that in Australia and around the world is... Uh, is that an orthotist will, will take a child's foot and they'll actually twist it into the position that they want it eventually to be. Yeah, they put it in cast every, my, it happened to my little fella. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so um, for someone with cerebral palsy who might have kind of a tightening of a muscle that means that their foot is actually kind of twisted in or, yeah. or sitting upward, that muscle then is rock hard. And so twisting that kind of foot into the position that you want it to be in is almost like kind of tearing muscle. It's like really, really painful. And so um, one of the parents was telling us that, you know, this was the second worst day of their child's life um, was the day that they got their first orthotics fitted. The okay. first worst day was actually the day that they were born and, and they were born with the umbilical cord wrapped around their neck yeah. and they had to be revived three times on the operating table. So for them to say this was the second worst day of their child's life was something big. And... Uh, and they said that they had to actually have four grown adults to hold their daughter down while while they were kind of doing this cast because she was screaming and writhing oh. in pain. And so the team from Ability Made said, we, we can do something about that. We can use 3D scanning and we can use 3D manufacturing to do this much better. So rather than physically manipulating the foot, they wanted to digitally manipulate the foot by taking a 3D image of it and then going, well, we can do all of that on the computer and go, we can actually kind of shift to where we want it to be. Um, 
And so they've created some incredible technology now. Um, they actually just won a Good Design Australia Award just last week. Um, and uh, and they've, they've got out to about, they've got eight or nine clinics, I think, around Australia now. Wow. Where they're doing this, this, this technology. It saves the orthotist time. Yeah. It saves them money because of that. And it's, and it's a much better experience for the customer. So, you know, this sort of um, kind of advances in technology, taking the best of technology that's around us and applying it to the disability sector, we just think is a huge opportunity. And so remarkable, you accelerated that program. You, you obviously provided seed funding took an equity stake, is that the way you guys work? We do now, yeah. The first few years we wanted to prove out that we were actually doing something that was valuable to the startups yeah. and, and, and definitely the feedback that we got was, yes, absolutely you are. And so, yeah, now we take a small equity stake in each of the businesses. Which also means you've got a vested interest in each of these things as well. Absolutely. Which, which, is, which is always the best way to run a business. So, and do you get a seat on the board? How does that work? No, we take a minority stake. So um, we just take a small 5% equity share in, in mm -hmm. most of the businesses. Um, we don't want them to have any down rounds or kind of, uh, you know, uh, to have, uh, so we match terms if they if they have raised before. Mm -hmm. um, but typically they're quite early stage products. So we, we call them kind of post-product pre-revenue companies. So yeah. um, quite early stage because we like to be able to kind of ensure that they've got good, good, that they're meeting the needs of customers. So we call that good product market fit. Um, and then we, we look at their business model and their go-to-market strategy around how do you actually get this out to the people who need it most. And for us, we're driven not just by um, kind of the, the dollar and, and kind of being able to see that these businesses become sustainable, growing businesses, but obviously we've got this incredible opportunity for impact on people's lives. Oh, wow, yeah. We're not just creating another coffee app that helps you order a latte 10 seconds faster or, you know, um, those sorts of things. We're actually creating technology that really makes a difference in someone's life. Mate, it's, um, it, it's remarkable. I know that's, uh, it is though. I don't think there's another word for it because that's, that's such a good branding and such a good business name for you because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and as I said, like, it's not just about the remarkable individuals we get to work with. It's kind of, yeah, us kind of wanting to see that. And eventually we actually, this is the kind of the really interesting part about it. We eventually want to see that we're done out of a job, that this isn't remarkable anymore. And that, that technology is just designed every day for all people rather than just yeah. a select few with certain kind of access needs. So... Have you had anyone come to you with what you thought was, nah, that's not going to work, and then actually found out, wow, that's really, really cool, and it actually yeah. it is good? We, we've had, <laughs> maybe not quite that. Um, we, we have had some, some uh, teams come to us and gone, I don't know if we can work with you. Um, not sure if you're kind of the most coachable people. We're not sure if... Uh, if an accelerator is the right fit for you, because you know there's there's certain kind of criteria you need to kind of look at in terms of their coachability and in terms of their readiness to kind of um, work with you on those things. Um, and we've we've actually been proved wrong a couple of times around that. And some of them have become some of our best teams. So uh, really, so give me uh, an example of one of them. Uh, so one that we've just worked with actually. So um, a couple of doctors kind of came to us and and. Uh, they were incredibly knowledgeable in, in the area of, of newborn resuscitation. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, and we haven't even told this story to them. So, um, but, um, and I love, I love the Mark and Murray, the, the two doctors, um, 
and and Mark just has kind of this endless enthusiasm, and and so he uh, he kind of talks a lot, and and kind of was dominating some of the conversations early on, and we we're kind of going, oh, maybe that's a little red flag for us. Yeah. But the technology that they're working on is just incredible, and it's literally going to save people's lives, and 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 save people from having disability as well. So giving breath to a brand new baby is is a super, super um, sensitive thing. If you give too much air to a little baby's lungs, uh, you can actually cause brain, brain bleeds and that actually can oh, be wow. the cause of cerebral palsy. So um, you can cause all sorts of kind of, um, of damage to a young baby's little lungs. If you don't give enough as well, then you obviously have the opposite problem of, of having um, the oxygen being starved um, for those little babies. So when you've got these little baby, premature babies, it is absolutely critical that, um, that people giving resuscitation to that little baby give the right amount. Yeah. And, and you talk to anyone that, that works in kind of neonatal care and they'll tell you that it is a really, really nerve wracking part of what they do. Um, because they want to make sure that they get it right and they want yeah, to make course. sure that they don't, you know, they don't cause um, uh, uh, unintended consequences of death or disability. And so what they've created is a little monitor that actually just monitors both um, the amount of air and also the, the seal that's actually around to make sure that the right amount of air is getting into the baby's lungs. And uh, they give that... Um, it, it literally kind of tacks onto a, a little um, resuscitation bag and uh, can be used by any any paramedic or any nurse or any any midwife in in a hospital um, so it, it is going to absolutely save people's lives and it is going to save people from having disability as well and it's something so small so unique so, so yeah. simple and it changes the world i love it yeah, yeah, absolutely. So watch out for them. Resus Right is their name. They're, they're What's it called? Resus Right. Resus Right. Yeah. Awesome. An incredible business and going incredible places. So we 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 love that team and and love the work that they're doing. Well, I love the fact that you're actually asking also the customer what they need. Like the story about the young girl that we with the wheelchair and and stuff is the fact that a customer is actually being able to tell you. So you know you've got a market for it. Absolutely. And, you? and you know, the, the really interesting thing, I think that it is absolutely critical that we have to have the customer at the center of any, any business. You have to have customer need at the center of that. And you need to know that really well. So we hold our startups accountable to say, how many customers have you spoken to this week? How many customers have you had a conversation with this week? Yeah. Because you need to keep, and, and you can't assume that you've got all the information once you've kind of um, had, you know, a few years or a few months in this, in this sector. You've got to keep talking to your customers. But the but really the interesting customers thing... customers are unique and defined as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Which really interesting really thing cool. about this space is that, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a little known fact that, that one in five Australians actually have a disability. Uh, around the world, it's around about one in six. Equivalent to around about 1.3 billion people in the world have a disability. And that's kind of about the same size as the population of China. And yet it's a quite an overlooked segment of our population yeah, in terms sure. of, of um, kind of the marketing to that, that people group, asking them what they need um, and, and about kind of going, what are those barriers that still exist from you achieving your full potential? And the thing is, you know, both you and I are in our 40s now. Um, as we age as well, uh, we are guaranteed, if we live kind of beyond the age of 80, we're guaranteed that we're probably going to have a disability for about a tenth of our life. 
And so if we're not disabled now, then we, we probably will be in the future. And so um, we are trying to kind of be big advocates for saying, don't overlook this segment. Don't overlook this sector oh, no. of our population. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there is money to be made here and we're not doing that from a, you know, let's, let's um, kind of milk everything it's worth out of it. We're doing that from a customer need perspective. Yeah, we need to meet the needs of these customers. No, it's really interesting. So what's your big sister say about what you do now? Uh, she, she kind of has some idea of what I'm doing. I don't yeah. think she knows kind of too much about startups, but uh, um, she, she's just happy for, for me to be kind of doing some work in this sector, I think, which is good. I think, I think my mum's kind of pretty proud of, of me kind of working in this sector too. So, uh, so that's a really nice thing to make your mum proud, right? Oh, 100%, mate, 100%. I just, I, it's really interesting because, as I said to you at the start of this, it, it take, all these conversations take you on a journey. And my, uh, my grandma was in a wheelchair, and I remember my dad was a master craftsman with wood, and he used to make, and she had really bad arthritis, he used to make special spoons and stuff just for her to hold yeah. to then be able to eat. And my mum's left-handed, so he used to make stuff that was just left-handed. And, like, they never marketed, never did anything. So it was just, but it was for the need. So yeah, I look at I look it. at the opportunities here, man. My mind's going a million miles an hour now. <laughs> is is the, the the opportunity and the size of the market? And as you say, it's a market that doesn't get touched. Absolutely. And so we're you know we're we're now um, and we're really excited about this. We're now starting to uh, to develop a, a, a global alliance of other accelerators around the world. Uh, investors as well that are interested in this space and uh, and so we've got representatives in in Kenya UK Ireland uh, India China uh, the US New Zealand Canada and we're starting to say you know let's start to kind of really make a big a big noise about this let's make a song and dance about this that that's awesome so how are you guys funded now you obviously started with Telstra with a bit of backing what do you how are you self-funded now or how do you guys work now? yeah no we still so we're still part of cerebral palsy alliance we're a division of cerebral palsy alliance an incredible organization here in new south wales and act yep uh and then we've got um backing from state government uh through an organization called i care here in new south wales uh, we also have still telstra telstra have been with yeah. us the whole way through um and and also microsoft as well have jumped on board um, and then we have some family offices, a couple of family offices that have also um, been really generous with us as well. So um, um, we are continually always looking for kind of more funders as well. So if it's a space that any of your listeners is interested in, I'm always keen to talk. I'm more, more, more than happy to hook up with whoever we can in this space and uh, to, to help out as much as we can. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This has been heaps of fun, mate. The way I always finish my podcast is with a couple of quick fire questions. You ready? Absolutely. What's your greatest achievement in life? Uh, my three children. Who's the person or people who have had the biggest influence on your career? My mum and my CEO, Rob White. Favourite food? Oh, um, I'd, I'd be tossing up between kind of Thai and Mexican Oh, a bit of Timex. Did I do that? You have to watch that one. Oh, it's such a bad dad joke. Favourite song? Um, oh, gosh. Um, uh, oh, don't know. 
don't know. I, I kind of, I'm, I always kind of listen to Spotify, Discover Now, and um, and and listen to so much kind of new music that way. Mate, so, we uh, know the truth here. You have a 16 year old daughter and 18 year old daughter. You listen to whatever they've got on. Really, I understand. I'm hearing it. Favorite true. place in the world? Uh, I, the beach um, in Australia, and and there's kind of a few beaches that I absolutely love. Shelley Beach, I love Burley Burley Beach up in in Queensland as well. Um, um, but yeah, absolutely love the beach. What's next? Uh, what's next is uh, international expansion. Pete, mate, you're not only a remarkable human, but you're an awesome human. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Keep good. keep doing the great work you're doing. Thanks, buddy. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcast. And I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels, as well as BJ Macker, uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.